That island of England breeds very valiant creatures. Their mastiffs are of unmatchable courage. Foolish curls that burn winking into the mouth of this Russian bear and have their heads crushed like rotten apples. You may as well say that a valiant flea that dare eat his breakfast on the lip of a lion. Just, just. And the men do sympathize with the mastiffs in robustious and rough coming on, leaving their wits with their wives, and then give them great meals of beef and iron and steel. They will eat like wolves and fight like devils. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is the podcast Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. So, I hope that my French friends aren't out there, you know, cringing at how awful that French accent <laughs> I just did was. But um, let's talk a little bit about the passage we just read from Shakespeare's play, Henry V. Yes, and I will say it's okay if we do it in a ludicrous French accent, because this is a heavily nationalistic play where Shakespeare is kind of mocking the French constantly. He wants his French characters to be these silly stereotypes of, uh, of Frenchness. The play is in part about nationality, among other things. So, so he's putting into the mouths of these French fried characters this kind of, I mean, they're mocking the English, but in fact, what they're really saying is how brave the English are, right? Yes. And, and, and they're saying one, that by referring to their dogs. Yeah. I mean, which is sort of a strange way. I don't know what the opposite of a backhanded compliment is. This is like a backhanded insult. It's an insult that really becomes a compliment, but at the same time compares the English to dogs. It's uh, pretty complicated, Ian. And it is. what about these dogs, these mastiffs? But, so for Shakespeare and for Shakespeare's audience, that comparison of them with their mastiffs would have been a compliment. This is a connection that was actually cultivated and accepted and even advertised in the early modern period. So, you know, I, I wanted to like, I just wanted to start with that passage because it, it calls attention to the mastiff and, and to this concept of breeding. And dog breeds are an interesting concept and one that I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about in the course of this episode and maybe others. But they're clearly using these animals as part of like the creation of a certain kind of uh, like notions of nationhood, which which I think is really interesting. And the other thing, of course, is that these mastiffs, this is the this is the other pair to the bear baiting that we covered in an earlier episode. This is the, these are the, the other animals in that in those events. The dogs used in bear baiting would have been called mastiffs at the time. Interesting, because I mean, at the same time that you know, you're saying that they're, this is a complimentary kind of comparison for English men to their dogs, their fierce and brave dogs. Those dogs, as we heard from our guest on that episode about bear baiting, were definitely the more disposable and less valued animals in that equation. That's what it seemed like. And I, after our research for today, I, I feel differently about the Mastiffs. And I, I think that they are actually, they play a much larger part than you would imagine when you 
consider the fact that, say, bears got names in the bear baiting arena and that dogs did not and that dogs suffered fatality at a high rate and the bears did not. I think there's there there is more more going on, but I'm I'm curious as to what because to me this seems to be so quintessentially Tudor or maybe even Elizabethan. Mm-hmm. This kind of the English Mastiff. It's a modern breed that does actually have you know we can see its origins in this period, although mm-hmm. the notion of breed is itself problematic. But I I'm curious to hear to what extent these sort of big fierce dogs have a medieval history. Well, they do, though, as you say, the whole concept of breed, at least the modern concept of breed, you know, with standards and sort of a, a kind of intentional fencing off of dog types is is more modern. It, it's not really a medieval concept. Dogs in the Middle Ages were most typically described by their function as they had been since classical antiquity. My colleague here at Utah State, Laura Gelfand, has remarked that the the word race itself first gets used in French in relation to dogs and in the early modern. So there's definitely something in that sort of nationalism and Eurocentrism that is related to dog breeding. But in any case, dogs, big, fierce, mastiff-like dogs, dogs with broad heads, big, powerful jaws, were certainly part of the story long before the Tudor period. So it's thought that these Molosser dogs arrived from Central Asia sometime in what we might call the late antique period, maybe even earlier. It's possible they arrived in England um, with the Celts. Nobody is really 100% certain, but there's some archaeological evidence for that. Um, Certainly by the time of Charlemagne, so by the ninth century, these very large dogs were being used in the hunting of the fiercest and most dangerous prey. So when people went out hunting, when Charlemagne went out hunting, the few remaining aurochs or the boars, the very large boars, they would take with them these extremely large, muscular, powerful dogs who were basically trained to run right in and attack the boar or the other large prey, uh, prey animal. But, you know, these are very, very fierce animals that would fight back. They wouldn't go down easily. So similar to the bear baiting, except these animals aren't chained up, the dogs were expected to rush in and attack, and they did. And so they're so they're mainly hunting dogs then in this period. Well, they were partly used for that, but again, we don't have breeds. The same kinds of very large, fierce, aggressive dogs were used to guard flocks. You know, if you had a flock of sheep, um, and there are wolves and bears in the Pyrenees or the Alps that you need to protect them from, um, especially during the summer when, you know, the practice of transhumance, they would bring their sheep or their their livestock up into the mountains to graze in the summertime. So they would bring these very large dogs with them to protect the flock. They weren't exclusively a rich man's dog, like princes and and wealthy landowners used them in hunting, but by the same token, poor shepherds might use them to guard their flocks. So, you know, these dogs were clearly, um, you know, they had these two purposes. They also had a third purpose, it seems, which was in war. And it's a little unclear when these dogs started to be used in war contexts, but um, certainly by the 15th century, they were being used, um, maybe by the 14th century even. At the Battle of Agincourt, which of course is 
described in uh, Henry V. There was a an English nobleman who was injured on the field, and there's a story about his dog guarding his injured body to prevent the French from killing him and stripping him. I'll come back to that story because that story is told by the English family that is most famously associated with the development of the English Mastiff. Ah, yes. And I have serious doubts as to the veracity of the story because of that. But yes, uh, so I've heard that story. True. And I mean, you know, the story doesn't need to be true for it to be evidence that there were mastiffs on the field at exactly. you know, exactly. in these battles. I think I think it's it's not an outlandish story for that reason. So I have a question about about breed in the period because the the animal that you hear referred to sometimes, particularly aristocratic animals, are greyhounds, which we have a very specific breed idea of what a greyhound is. But is that term, would that term have included animals like the big-bodied heavy mastiff, or is the medieval greyhound really a sighthound very close to our greyhound? It's such a good question, and I've read so many conflicting interpretations of the evidence, (laughs) but it does seem like there were kind of two different sorts of large hunting dogs being employed. And one is more of a coursing dog, a dog that, that chases the prey and than these other dogs, which are less fragile, I suppose, they're, they're more robust, are really expected to be the ones who go in for the kill or to be killed. It, you know, it's really difficult because there isn't this concept of a specific breed, though there is a lot of discussion of a type of dog called an allon in French, um, which comes from the word allen, which is the name of one of the so-called barbarian tribes that came into Western Europe at the end of the Roman Empire and was party to the destruction of the Western Roman Empire. So these dogs may have come with these so-called barbarians, or they may be compared to the sort of destructive force of these so-called barbarians. But they're definitely associated with this kind of more robust, ferocious, aggressive typology, as opposed to greyhounds, which are really better known for their swiftness, right? Like, I mean, I imagine a greyhound will bite (laughs) given provocation, but, you know, these are dogs that are basically bred to bite or, you know, selected for their, for their ability to muscle prey down. And, and I mean, the descriptions, you get later descriptions, especially from the early 16th century in the new world where the Spanish took these dogs with them as war dogs and engaged in some really gruesome practices, uh, La Montierra Infernal, where they basically hunted men, women, and children, indigenous men, women, and children down and watched the dogs tear them apart as part of their campaign of shock and horror. There are similar uh, stories about the English taking mastiffs to Ireland, although Mm -hmm. the bloody end is not there. You hear that they, they were going to take these dogs there, but Fortunately, I suppose we don't hear of any stories of whether they actually did or whether they used them in that way. But 
yeah, you know, no, the... we have we have like very specific accounts from the Spanish perspective. Of I the, mean, they weren't yeah. trying to hide it. So there's large dogs being, you know, like mastiff type dogs across Europe in, mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it seems to be the case. And I mean, certainly like in the 13th century, there's a English forest law called the Charter of the Forest from 1217. And specifically, it mentions that dogs whose owners live on the boundaries of these royal forests have to cut the front three toes off the dog's feet so that they won't chase game. And it's not clear whether the dogs that they're talking about, like the specific law originally pertains only to greyhounds, but somehow it came to be applied, I think, much more broadly to any dog that might threaten the hunting stock of a royal forest. I will say that if you've ever met a modern mastiff, it's hard to imagine them chasing a lot of things. They're big and slow. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to bring them in at the kill rather than use them for coursing. Yeah, and, you know, it's, again, a little confused because there isn't a so- sort of specific right. vocabulary that distinguishes which dogs are doing which work in the hunt. But, you know, in some ways it was just like the number of dogs you owned. There's a a scholar at DePaul University, his name is Andrew Miller, who's done some really interesting work on the sort of, on this practice of cutting off the toes of the dog. So that's called lying. Um, And he interprets it as a kind of symbolic castration, essentially, not of the dog, but of the dog's owner. um, So dogs and masculinity are really closely tied together. So owning a lot of dogs, controlling a big pack of dogs, these are kind of signs not only of wealth, but also of sort of aristocratic masculine prowess. Yeah, that, that, that's why, you know, Chaucer's most famous dogs are the, the greyhounds that mm-hmm. belong to the monk. Yep. Ah, the monk's greyhounds. Yeah. yeah, but he has a lot of horses. I mean, he has all these aristocratic. I mean, he's basically in, in the role for the wrong reasons from a modern perspective and mm-hmm. also from a, you know, a, a medieval perspective. And the, and the fact that he owns greyhounds and lots and lots of horses is just, it's, it's sort of the, uh, these are the accessories of the aristocracy. Right. But, you know, because they're animals, because they're living beings, I think they go beyond being accessories. I think they become kind of extensions of the persona of the human who believes to be the themselves to be the owner (laughs) you know i think that um the dog in this case the mastiff is in some ways a kind of projection and externalization of the owner's um power his ferocity and going back to this idea of you know the english are mastiffs on the battlefield right like they're they're as ferocious as as dogs and as fearless as these animals that will fling themselves into the mouth of a Russian bear. They may be small, but they're, but they're mighty, <laughs> to misquote another. Uh, I guess uh, the word that some people have used for this, this kind of connection is rather than talking about, say, metaphor or symbol, you know, like saying that they're symbolic, uh, to talk about animals being used uh, it, metonymically or as metonymies, mm-hmm. where they're, they're part of the thing that they are representing. They're, exactly. they're deeply involved in as, you know, physically they're right. not, not called upon as some heraldic or symbolic exterior. Exactly. And that's why that story of um, Sir Piers Lee, the 
English knight on the battlefield at Agincourt, the dog and, and the man's body are of a piece, of a larger, they are both attributes of a larger thing, which is this aristocratic masculinity. And, and I think, I mean, there's also in anthropology, this idea of a kind of distributed personhood, you know, the, the, the things, the thing that you are as a person is not just your body, but it extends into the things that you own and that the things that pertain to you and this sort of, especially the living bodies that pertain to you, whether they're human or animal bodies and this yeah. kind of extension of yourself through this whole network. But it seems to me like dogs, because they're so close to us, are a particularly apt beast for this kind of extension. They are. The other one is horses, which we could, we will obviously be talking about We will as well. definitely be talking about horses <laughs> sometimes. Um, and this you is know, a, I'm a former it, horse girl, so. Uh, excellent. <laughs> this is, I guess this is, this is the, the, the moment when we should say that the, the Mastiff is fantastical in the sense that it becomes part of the fantasy of, of masculinity and nationality. Uh, it is literally fantastical in that, in that sense of the word. Rather right. Than and also imaginary. sort of, yeah. And also sort of like fantastically powerful in the yes. sense of, you know, these stories that we have of these dogs attacking much larger ferocious beasts or attacking human beings and ripping their throats out, that kind of thing. I mean, it becomes a kind of not not just fantastic beasts, but a phantasm, a kind of figure of fear. So, I mean, there are, there are there are clearly these dogs at the beginning of the early modern period. There are large dogs across Europe. We might mm -hmm. say that there are mastiffs from different countries. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to this day, we talk about things like the Spanish mastiff. I mean, it's, you know, it's a distinct breed. But what happens in the early modern period is that the English mastiff becomes the most famous mastiff, not just in England, but but across Europe. They, be, you know, they they become associated with the country, not just inside the country, but outside as well, in part because of the efforts of the English to promote that themselves. Um, and it's even true that it's it's sort of one of the first dogs that gets, that turns into a breed, and it's responsible for a, a really interesting change in the language itself. So we could say that the Mastiff is the first dog ever, the first real dog, uh, because in the Middle Ages, the generic term in English was hound. That's the Germanic root. Um, that's what Chaucer uses for all the dogs um, that, he, that he encounters. So the, like the word dog is, is kind of an emerging word. And the Oxford English Dictionary, which of course is you know, like our favorite source for everything like this, basically ha has no clue exactly as to what, where dog comes from, but sort of surmises that the word dog originated as a term for a large, strong dog used for defensive life and property, which is pretty much the Mastiff. And so what, what happens in the period is that that kind of dog, you know, the one that's called a dog, suddenly that term is being used for all dogs and that the, the generic term hound is oh. then restricted to a, a, a subset, right? So like there's still plenty of hounds, but that's not the generic word. So before the English Mastiff, a dog was a special kind of hound. After the English Mastiff, a hound is a special kind of dog. And that makes the English Mastiff the first of all the dogs. I guess there's a couple reasons why that might be true. So you could either imagine that, well, there's just an awful lot of really large dogs around. So like, you know, they 
it just displaces everything else. Or they are prominent in the popular imagination. And that's why. And I, it's probably a combination of those two things, but it is essentially, it's due to the Mastiff itself. So were there no Mastiffs, we would have no dogs. We would just have hounds today. Mm. <laughs> uh, so Mastiff, Mastiff is the very first real dog. Is that so? I mean, I thought that there were lap dogs in the Middle Ages. Well, there, but there were, are, were they the, called? Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> well, I'll tell, you know, Chaucer calls them small hounds. Ah. Right. Uh, he descri- he describes what are lap dogs. The, the prioress in the Canterbury Tales has these little dogs, right? But yeah. they're they're not little. They're not lap dogs or little dogs. They're small hounds. And there's a kind of dog, isn't there, in French at least, called a dog, like D-O-G-U-E, a dog. And yes. it's definitely a mastiff. Right. And that's, and that's the other piece of evidence is that when the term dog filters into other languages and gets applied to animals, it's usually a large, it's usually a mastiff type, right? So like mm-hmm. that says they're adopting an English term, which they see is associated with like a mastiff, a big dog rather than a like generic now all dogs are dogs so ian when does this all start this sort of specific identification of the english with mastiffs is it shakespeare or is it before that it's a little earlier i think it's it's the the tutors that begin to sort of cultivate that connection mm-hmm. um and we know so w- what happens early on is that conrad gessner who's a not an english person right uh w- is putting together an encyclopedia of animals and comes to the entry for dog and calls upon an English colleague, John Keyes, to do the dog entry for him. Mm. And Keyes comes up with a, a famous work called uh, De, De Cannabis Anglicus, which mm, is the... I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, which then gets translated by a guy named Fleming as of English dogs. And it's so popular yeah. that when uh, my favorite... Edward Topsell comes to put his encyclopedia together. He just takes that entry by Keyes and dumps it into the, the dictionary under his entry for dog. So it is sort of de facto. But, you know, it, we have the Latin, right? Cannabis, right? Which gives us chien, right? So the, the canine word. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, you know, by the time by the time it's getting turned into an English translation, it becomes dogs right it's it's suddenly dogs and no one no one batted an eye at that and that was 1576 so that's that's still pretty early right the the cannabis britannicus turns into so like sometime between 1400 say canterbury tales 1576 this is happening interesting and what does all of this have to do with the british bulldog well that's another that's another metonymic dog from uh from much later from the victorian era because the 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 mastiff gets bred to other dogs so that you have the bull mastiff, which is a cross between a bulldog and a mastiff. But that's all, I mean, like at this moment, they're not really separating the dogs used to bait bulls, which is what a bulldog is, from Mm -hmm. the dogs used to bait bears or anything else. And they're calling them all mastiffs. Mm -hmm. I will say that that what a mastiff looked like in 1576 was probably quite a bit different than what we expect. That the look of the modern Mastiff breed solidifies somewhere around the 1690s based on just portraits and, you know, like take a look at the dog and you'll recognize a Mastiff around then. But so like at the time, people started to think that England was somehow 
especially for its dogs. So you've got non-English people commenting on this. So Abraham Ortelius, who's like a famous map maker, you probably know about Ortelius. Mm -hmm. uh, it is epitome of the theater of the world. And he says, England is notable for two things, the women and a most excellent kind of mastiff dogs of a wonderful bigness and admirable fierceness and strength. Uh, so... Wait, but what about the women? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he admired English women and English mastiffs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tells you something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know where you want to go with that. But I love that he gives you more description about why the dogs are admirable than the women. I guess he presumes that you would know why he admired English women, but he doesn't say he doesn't say why. I'll give you the description of the mastiff from the period. This is from he's, you know, of English dogs. He says this kind of dog, called a mastiff or band dog is vast, huge, stubborn, ugly, and eager, of a heavy and burdenous body, and therefore but of little swiftness, terrible and frightful to behold. It is a kind of dog capable of courage, violent and valiant, striking cold fear into the hearts of men, but standing in fear of no man, insomuch that no weapons will make him shrink or abridge his boldness. That's a pretty fierce dog. That's the dog you would take to war. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're really, they are not thinking of the Mastiff primarily at this period as a, as a hunting dog at all. It's a dog that protects property, protects people, mm -hmm. a dog that's maybe used in war, all of those kinds of things. And so England became famous for the dogs. And I said it's in part because of the efforts of the English. So they would give dogs to foreign monarchs as gifts. So famously, mm -hmm. they gave a Mastiff to the Mughal. Of, of India. Mm. And of course, the mogul then immediately, you know, tried the dog against leopards and bears, and it did, you know, apparently amazingly well. But what I want to know is, did they stake this dog out? Uh, hopefully it was a female dog, and they staked her out at night where the tigers are so that she could breed with the tigers. Remember that story <laughs> you, from you, our previous episode right. on tigers? <laughs> <laughs> you would think so. Or maybe that's where the, you know, the legendary molossers came from. Although, yeah, I, I haven't tracked that down at all. Henry VIII, this is why I think it's early Tudor, right? So Henry VIII sends some men to Charles V, who's the Holy Roman Empire. And this is 1544 for some battles against the French king. And he sent 400 English soldiers who were accompanied with 400 English mastiffs, each with a special iron collar. So these are obviously dogs of yeah. war. We don't know how they did. We don't know whether they actually went along or whether this was just supposed. But Henry VIII, at least, is thinking that this is what this is what we can provide this is this is emblematic of the of what of what we can we can give so you know about the virginia colony right the first first english colony in the new world yes two I've dogs heard of it. <laughs> two dogs went to the virginia colony uh -huh. one of those dogs is a mastiff uh-huh there were two dogs on the mayflower one of them was a mastiff i feel if you're going to put two dogs on a boat somewhere you should put two dogs of the same breed so they can be bred together so you can have then three dogs and four dogs and so on maybe that, maybe that was later and he's is uh, of english dogs about 25 percent of it is the mastiff so it's the largest single entry in there it's it's it is the dog the dog of dogs shall we say the king of dogs it's king of dogs, yes. Well, you know, I refer to the Spanish conquistadors using these dogs in this really terrible way. And they did, um, unlike the bear baiting mastiffs uh, that we talked about earlier, these dogs did have names and, and reputations and their, their owners would outfit them in armor. Sometimes the armor was made out of boar tusks, apparently, but they would armor the dogs. And in the training of the dogs, they would also 
um, sort of train them to to attack frightening animals and also human beings while wearing sort of protective armor for training purposes. But they had full suits of armor for these dogs. And um, there is a story about the Spanish army facing down the French army and the French had brought their dogs that they they had heard that the Spanish had these dogs, I guess. And the French brought their dogs to war and the Spanish dogs terrify the French dogs and the French dogs run away with their tails between their legs. So, I mean, I, I don't know how much truth there is in that account, but the again, it's less whether that event actually happened and more the question of like, is that plausible to a 16th century individual? And apparently, yes, it is. So by that time, it sounds like these dogs are, are part of any military operation by the you know, 16th century, end of the 16th century. It would seem so, but we don't encounter a lot of actual references to the dogs on the mm. battlefield itself, mm. which if you consider the sort of the chaos of battle, Mastiffs were also legendary in their ability to sort of distinguish friend from foe or try to like, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they know their family, they know the strength, you know, like they're wary of strangers. But mm-hmm. in battle with armor, like, I mean, it, I, I, you, you gotta you gotta think that it, it might not necessarily be a good idea to have a dog specifically trained to attack people in a melee (laughs) right could get messy yes especially if if you've ever tried to pull any dog out of a you know attacking anything even a woodchuck right it's a scary Mm -hmm. thought yeah but they did have to be trained and this is one of the things that we sort of we i just we didn't really talk about with with bear baiting that the dogs aren't really demonstrating somehow that like a natural inclination at all they're they're following their training and again if you know modern any anybody with a, a mastiff these days, these are they're pretty easygoing, lovable dogs. I mean, they are intimidating, and they certainly are family oriented, right? Uh, but but they're but they're kind of good natured critters um, in comparison to maybe some some other dogs. So they have to be trained to do these things, but yet they get all these adjectives then attached to them. You know, the, the sort of the positive ones about their strength and and everything, but also they get called wild and cruel and currish and rude. So there's, yeah. if they're being, they are deployed, you know, positively as sort of emblems of nationality and uh, uh, masculinity, but they're also a problem because you have some writers saying, you know, all, all this, uh, you spend so much time with these dogs and you cultivate all these, this, you know, cruelty and wildness in them. And you, you have a problem yourself. Christopher Wace, mostly positive about, English and dogs, you know, the English relationship with dogs. But he also says, you got to watch out lest, and here's this quotation. He says, lest by continual conversation with dogs, you become altogether addicted to slaughter and carnage, which is wholly dishonorable being a servile employment. They're using it as a kind of metonymy for nation, but they're also a little anxious as to what that dog might represent. That, that kind of like cruel and rude and uncivilized part is something that they didn't really want to have at the same time. Mm. And I, I think you, you see this also in the, in the way that the animals were, were used in the period. Aristocrats started deliberately breeding animals that they called mastiffs, and that mm-hmm. led to the development of a, like a single type. And that begins with the Lee family, who has this famous legend about Agincourt that you mentioned from Limehall in Cheshire. I've been there, by the way. That's It's the place that they used as uh, uh, Mr. Darcy's house for one of the famous uh, Jane Austen oh, series. Oh, the Colin Firth series? Yes. Yep. 
yeah so that's 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 lime hall where the lee family lived you could still uh, see the kennels where the where the masters were bred there and there's a lot uh, of uh, sort of mastiff related material in their in their archives so they they are breeding these dogs and initially they're they're being circulated in part to be used in bear baiting so one of the things you could do in bear baiting is you were allowed to bring your own dog to bet on and aristocrats began bringing their own dogs and seeking out dogs from famous breeds like the ones produced by the Lee family. Hmm. But then these dogs start turning up in, in portraits. And in the portraits, they're not being portrayed primarily as fierce, terrifying creatures. They're being portrayed in the way that dogs often have, even I think through some of the, the Middle Ages, as emblems of loyalty, loyalty and nobility at the, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's a portrait of Elizabeth I's master of the armory, Sir Henry Lee. Apparently there's a story, his life was saved by his massive dog. And so he had his portrait painted with the dog and there's a little poem about the dog in the portrait. And the, the dog, uh, it's, uh, it doesn't quite look like a modern mastiff. The nose is a little bit pointy and the, what we expect from mastiffs is really big, heavy nose, mm-hmm. uh, among other things. But by the end of the 17th century, you get these aristocratic portraits that are including animals that are much more like the the modern mastiff and they're they're often being portrayed as as literally as family dogs so there's a famous portrait of the family of charles the first which has all the children surrounded by a gigantic mastiff who's just sitting there quietly clearly a clearly family pet clearly dog you would trust with babies Yeah, uh, I mean, t- as I recall, in that in that painting, there's another dog as well, right? That's like sort of a small spaniel dog. Yeah, but, a small. Yeah, yeah. But the uh, baby is reaching for the for the giant dog. Like the, the baby is obviously more attracted to the big dog than the yeah than the little one. So you, so the mastiff itself is going through its own kind of transformation. In fifteen, in the middle of the sixteenth century, you have mastiffs are still being criticized uh, or at least considered less aristocratic so you have comparisons like fair greyhounds versus foul mastiff curs mm. by the end of the early modern period 1800 well like 1790s you have quotations like william ferners from his book on dogs he says what the lion is to the cat the mastiff is to the dog the noblest of the family he stands alone and all others sink before him mm. so they have they have turned the They've started with the Mastiff. Uh, they have cultivated the Mastiff as a fierce, currish dog. And then they have turned the Mastiff into the most noble and amazing thing ever. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think about how, going back to the Van Dyke portrait of Charles II, like I think the idea of associating dogs with children suggests, again, getting back to the idea of metonymy, that you know your dog is sort of akin to your child. And you have a kind of emotional relationship with this animal that is more than the emotional relationship you would have with other types of pets. That's closer. It's more intense. It's it's longer lasting. You grieve longer for this animal. And I think there's also in this sort of 17th century, 18th century period, people start commissioning portraits of their dogs, you know, so that after the dog dies you have it (laughs) yeah and i've never looked to see like what proportion of those dogs are spaniels versus greyhounds versus mastiffs but it would be interesting to start thinking about that 
Yeah, it's, it's fun to take a trip through the National Portrait Gallery in London and look only for the dogs in the pictures because they're everywhere. And, they're, and yeah. there's quite a, quite a bit of variety. So Van Dyck is famous for not only for portraits like that one, but also for developing a, a Mastiff dog that could be inserted in went to, to, to portraits. So you, we have more than one portrait where it's clearly, it's the, it's the same dog, not just the same dog, but the same. It's like photoshopped in, essentially, in, uh, in in painterly terms, so that you could have your portrait painted and you didn't even need to have the dog there or even own a dog. You could order up a Mastiff and have them painted into your picture with you. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Did, do you think he had like a a book with pictures of the various dogs you could choose or, you know, because I mean, he did paint a lot of portraits of people with dogs. I mean, with dogs. you know, if and you just like are... Google Van Dyke dog and it like, you know, there are thousands of results because, and they're all different sorts of dogs, you know. And dogs are difficult. It's difficult to get dogs to sit for photographs, let alone portraits. So you could, you could certainly imagine how Van Dyke you know, right. a, a accomplished portrait artist would be aware that it's easier to use, you know, your pre-made sketches of the dog than to have a real dog. So I'm not saying that people didn't have the dog necessarily. Right. Well, and I also imagine, I mean, a lot of Van Dyke's painting, portrait paintings um, depict children as well as dogs or, you know, horses. To come back to horses, horses and dogs cannot be divorced in the cultural history of, of England in particular, um, no. of the aristocracy more generally in Europe. But animals don't understand portraiture and they're not going to stand still for a portrait. So obviously, you know, he had to have kind of a stock of visual ideas that he could turn back to and sketches probably that he made very quickly. I think the sort of national metonymy is still functioning even in the family portraits because in a way, mm -hmm. by representing, by taking the Mastiff, which certainly still has a reputation for ferocity and is being publicly, you know, marketed beyond the country in that sense. And then mm -hmm. portraying it as a sort of a friendly defender of family, mm -hmm. you, you, you get to have sort of have uh, both sides of the Mastiff, right? You get to, you get to claim the, you know, boldness and courage and ferocity, but you get to avoid the problem of uh, incivility, which, is mm -hmm. the problem they raise when they have the mastiff only as a bear baiting mm -hmm. animal you get you mm -hmm. get it you get both ways right so like that portrait conjures up all of the uh sort of hyper masculine aspects of the that the aristocracy perhaps wanted to still claim but then they also get to claim love of family and civility and uh, affection and all those kinds of things and label put those on onto the mastiff as well Right. I mean, there is so much going on in this painting about the sort of royal body, right? I mean, yes. these are the children of, of this monarch, Charles I. His heir is front and center, dressed like a little grown-up. But then this dog, it's like the dog and the, and the heir are fi like physically entwined in the painting. Do you know what I mean? Like their bodies yes. aren't even... Because of Van Dyck's technique, which uses a lot of deep shadow, there's a kind of actually right, right at the, um, how how do I put this politely for podcast audiences? When you look at the little boy, um, you know Charles II, 
um, and you look at the dog, like there, there's this kind of black space um, in the center <laughs> and it's right at the sort of reproductive level of the future king. So there's kind of like a lot going on in that painting about... Oh my gosh. About children, about dynasty, about, you know, the sort of, again, this network, this extended network of the king's masculinity and, and sort of fertility. It's, it's pretty, mm-hmm. it's a pretty interesting portrait and it's, you know, worthy of the artist who painted it, who's clearly someone who's visual thinking goes way beyond just like okay here's here's some cute kids who happen to be the royal children he's in touch with the popular imagination because yeah there's the you know the like the animal body and the human body are via these kind of metonymies are so closely connected all the all the as all the aspects of the mastiff that i described that that first description by keys those are all descriptions that would also be associated with what they would called the northern human body because they had this idea mm. that climate determines character and, and, mm. and you know, your physical makeup and so the description of the massive is the description of a northern person including the character of a northern person and england always saw itself as kind of both northern and southern it, it felt it was possibly sort of challenged climatically right like they weren't sure like are we a northern people or are we a southern do we have the worst aspects of both do we have the best mm. of both and they're mm. they're playing out some of these concerns in the bodies of the of the dogs. Well, I think we've we, I think we've talked the mastiff out. We're definitely going to have to come back to spaniels, to greyhounds. Yes, uh, because the spaniel is the other dog on the Mayflower and the other dog in the Virginia colony. Oh yeah, and they're it's both also quintessentially English dog. English but dog. Yeah. I, I have plenty to say about lap dogs or small hounds that hasn't to do with with England has to do with france and and italy so uh, i i bet you will we definitely yes head Thank in that heavens, there's so many different kinds of dogs yeah <laughs> but before we get to all the dogs because we can we can i think project many many future episodes on dogs wolves foxes you know i'm i'm looking forward to horses as well who are yes. part of a sort of triumvirate of aristocratic animals which includes of course hounds or dogs of various sorts and and hawks hawks. right yep exactly hawks so so much fun to come yes all right so we have a listener question about bears this listener wants to know do we know more exactly where bears where the bears came from given the fact that they are being imported into england and i i thought i haven't i have a potential answer to this but you talked about the extinction of bears in the uk do we have a sense of where bears were on the continent or where they weren't? Well, we know for sure that there were bears in the Pyrenees. Um, there are accounts of bears preying on people's livestock. There were probably still bears in the Alps, in the Baltic region, and certainly in Russia. And in fact, the association of Russia with bears goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. So... Ursus Arctos Arctos, the European brown bear, lived in all of those places. I think one of the interesting things about those bears is that those populations became, you know, severely threatened in the 20th century, but they're actually slowly rebounding now, both through, you know, conservation efforts and 
and sort of rewilding of certain areas, mountainous areas. I know there's there are still bears in the Iberian Peninsula, not many, but there probably were a lot more then. But I'm mm-hmm. I, I think we could be we can be pretty sure that they're they were not getting their bears from Spain or from the southern regions because they don't appear in any of the bills of lading, although it's a little difficult to tell. I mean, they tend to represent large quantities of things. If they also brought along a bear, it's not clear that a merchant would necessarily record the bear as being part of the cargo. But I went and looked at the names of the bears in the bear garden, and we have a mm-hmm. list of all, all a long list of named bears. Many mm. of the bears have names that are associated with place names in, in England. And all of those place names are from east and north of London, hmm. which indicates that it, if they're being brought into the country and being tagged, they're being brought in through ports like Ipswich or North, which means they either come from the Baltic or from further north. And I think there may be a reason to think that, that the Russian bear, uh, the association of the Russian bear is being cemented actually in this period. It doesn't appear, as far as I can tell, until the end of the sixteenth century, the the word the Russian that phrase Russian bear like starts being picked up, yeah, yeah. and it's in Shakespeare, um, but it, it sort of appears at the end of the sixteenth century. But something really interesting happens in the middle of the sixteenth century. There's an English expedition to try to discover the Northeast Passage to to Cathay to China, and they go north, and of course they can't get across, they can't get all the way across, but they do end up at the port of Archangel in Russia, and at this mm. time. Russia was pretty isolated from the rest of Europe, in part because Sweden was hostile to Russia and controlled all of the Baltic. So Russia could not export through St. Petersburg and the Baltic Sea for the, most of the 16th century. And the Tsar ends up with a special treaty with England and a, a trading company called the Muscovy Company. So for a while, England was pretty much the only country in Europe that was explicitly trading with Russia. And I know they were trading furs. I know they were trading bear skins. Mm-hmm. I don't have a record of them trading bears, but I, I'm going to guess that some of those bears probably did come from Russia rather than from, say, Norway, which is another big source of bears. Mm. But whatever, they they either came from one of those two places, uh, based on the, based on the place names, and the kind of trading history of the, of the country. I just sort of misspoke that bears were associated with Russia in the Middle Ages. It's rather the case that in Russia, bears were associated with specific religious cults, and they had a very central place in Russian folklore. In Russian in folklore, Ages, yes. So. Yeah. yeah. So, but but definitely, like, the Orthodox Church comes to be represented by a bear within a bear. the Russian tradition. So. Yeah. But you know the Rus- you know the Russian bear enters the English language at the end of the 16th century. Yeah, interesting. Okay, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate us online. That's the best way to get new listeners to find us. You can also go to our website at realfantasticbeasts.com, where you can find show notes, and images, and merchandise, and a link to support us on Patreon. We will see you again in two weeks with the most magical bird in the world.